0: Right. uh, Good evening, everybody. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, Welcome to the London School of Economics. Um, My name is Simon Glendinning, and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And this is the second in the lecture series, the Forum for European Philosophy lecture series on secularity and value. Incidentally, I know this won't make much difference to those who are present here tonight, but the uh, podcast of this event will be available on the uh, LSE website um, later. Now, last week, in the first of uh, our lectures, we began to see that the secularity of political life could be affirmed by believers, religious believers, as well as non-believers, Mona Siddiqui, last week, is a secular person who's also a Muslim. Today, we have a secular person who is also a humanist. Professor Richard Norman is one of the vice presidents of the British Humanist Association, and he's a member of the Humanist Philosophers Group. Last year, uh, Richard co-edited and... no, he edited and co-wrote a pamphlet for the British Humanist Association called The Case for Secularism. It says, A Neutral State in an Open Society. And the pamphlet aims to argue for the merits of the kind of inclusive society that is, on the view taken there, made possible by a secular society. Richard is also the author of a number of books on his own, The Moral Philosophers, uh, a book some years ago now, but still regularly used in many courses introducing moral philosophy at British universities and elsewhere. A book called Free and Equal, a book on ethics, killing and war, and a book most recently on humanism. Although Richard's work has uh, engaged with and involved itself with humanism uh, in the last few years, it's not at all fair, it would not be at all fair to call him an enemy of religion. Richard aims to promote a society in which religious and non-religious views can find a hearing. And Today we are finding a hearing for Richard (laughs) (laughs) on (laughs) secularism and shared values. So I now leave it to Richard. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, and thank you very much, Simon, for that introduction and for inviting me. I'm very pleased to come here today to talk. Um, the other preliminary thing I need to say is, please forgive me for talking sitting down, but I sprained my ankle last week, um, but I've been provided with what I think is a, uh, this little stool to perch on that I think about the right height, and I can certainly see everybody from where I am, so I hope you'll excuse me if I, if I speak from here. If things get animated in discussion, I might leap up, but for the time being, I'll stick here. Um, the discussion of secularism tends to be bedeviled by problems of definition and the running together of different um, definitions of, of the term. Is that pointing in the right direction? Can everybody hear me at the back? Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, okay, thanks. Thanks. Right. Um, What I'm primarily interested in is secularism in the sense in which we talk about it in the pamphlet that Simon just mentioned, that's to say secularism as a normative view about society, um, a preferred model of society, the view that social and political institutions should be independent of religion or religious institutions. It's what's traditionally referred to as the separation of church and state, although that 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 label um, needs to be updated as it were in in a multicultural society where there are many different religions and the role of the traditional role of the established church is rather different. The present government as you know has courted what it calls faith communities and sought to give them special access I think to national and local government and a role in special role in public consultations and it's also of course given a lot of support to faith schools and has plans to give so-called faith communities an enhanced role in the delivery of public services. Now, secularism in this first sense that I'm primarily interested in is a rejection of that trend as well as a rejection of longer established practices such as uh, the role of the monarch as head of the Church of England and the use of Anglican forms of worship for state occasions and reserved places for bishops in the House of Lords and so on. So I'm calling this secularism as a preferred model of society. It's basically the view that there should be no privileged place for religion or religions in the public life of society. Now that version of secularism is often run together with a second normative view, which is what you might call secularism as a a way of life. Uh, A view of the world and a way of life based entirely on non-religious beliefs and values. That's not the same thing as atheism, but they're likely to overlap. You could, in principle believe in the existence of God, but essentially live your life by secular values and so would be a secularist in that sense. But the important point I want to stress is that the case for secularism in that first sense as a model of society doesn't depend on the acceptance of secularism as a way of life. And I think this is relevant to to, to what um, Simon was saying in his introduction. You could be Um, a committed Christian or a committed adherent of some other religion but still support secularism as a view of society as the the separation of religious institutions from social and political institutions and indeed many many committed uh, members of religious groups do so it's a mistake I think to run together criticism of secularism in those two two sentences although people tend to do so as we'll see shortly and then finally I want to (coughs) distinguish both those Understandings of the concept of secularism from what we could call the secularization thesis which is a, an empirical claim about the decline uh, a claim about the decline of religion in our own society um, now um, that, that empirical claim may or may not be correct but it's independent of the two normative positions and particularly of the one that I'm interested in though again we'll see that um, um, you know, there, there are connections between those three Ideas and, and hence a tendency to run them together more than they should be. Now, what I'm primarily concerned to do in this talk is to defend secularism in that first sense then. But I want to begin by looking at two examples of criticisms of secularism which I think tend to run together to or indeed those three positions that I've been dis- trying to distinguish Here's the view of um, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, the head of the Catholic Church in this country. This was in an interview in The Guardian a couple of months ago. Um, uh, He was quoted as saying that Judeo-Christian values were the only thing binding British society together. Speaking to The Guardian, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor hit out at representatives of an aggressive secularism which he thinks is gaining ground in in, in this country. So there's the the empirical claim there, the attack on, I think, secularism in my second sense, but as we see, he then links that up with an attack on secularism in my first sense. People are looking for a common good in this country. A very large number of people are saying, what is it that binds British people together? There is no other heritage than the Judeo-Christian heritage in this country. To abandon this or to put in its place a totally secular view of life would lead the nation down a very dangerous path. When asked if that meant Christian leaders should have a privileged position in making interventions in public policy, Cardinal Murphy O'Connor said, yes, I don't see why not. So on the strength of a rejection of secularism in my second sense, he's also rejecting secularism in my first sense. He thinks that... uh, um, uh, Christianity should have a privileged place in the in the institutionalised public life of this country because he fears the erosion of values through the growth of secularism as a way of life. Similar case was made just a few days ago uh, in an article by the Bishop of Rochester, Bishop Michael Nazir Ali. Uh, I think it was published on on Friday, so timely. Um, He he says in that article, which is in a a journal called Standpoint and it's on the web, the process of secularization, that's that's the empirical um, claim, has created the moral and spiritual vacuum in which we now find ourselves. In deep and varied ways, the beliefs, values and virtues of Great Britain have been formed by a Christian faith. These values, he says, are not freestanding. They cannot indefinitely exist in a vacuum. The danger, rather, is that we are living on past capital, which is showing increasingly, increasing signs of being exhausted, So he's worried about secularization in the empirical sense because it represents the growth of secularism in my second sense as a way of life. And that, I think, again, leads him to, to, to criticize secularism in my, my first sense. It's not entirely clear what he's asking for in institutional and political terms, but what he says in that article is to argue for the continuing importance of Christian beliefs and values is not necessarily to argue for the privileging of any church, but, he says, faith should have a role in public life. Government will have to be increasingly open to religious concerns and to make room for religious conscience as far as it's possible to do so. Now, one of the things I want to consider is what, you know, what, that, what we could take that to mean if it doesn't mean privileging of, of a church or, or, or a religious belief system, and that's something we need to look at. So, it seems to me... We've got, in, in those two statements, we've got four claims to consider. Uh, and I'm going, what I'm basically going to do is to, 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 to look at each of these in turn. First, the claim that society needs to be held together by shared values. Secondly, the claim that those shared values, which are capable of holding our society together, have to be located in a shared tradition. Thirdly, that in our own society, those values are Christian values because they're derived from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And fourthly, and this is where it leads to a rejection of secularism in my first sense, the Judeo-Christian tradition, therefore, should enjoy a, in some sense, specially entrenched position in the life of our society. So, I want to look at those four claims in turn. The first claim, do we need shared values to hold us together? Actually, I think we do. I do actually agree with that, that first of those four claims. Why? Why should that be so? You might say, well, why do we need that degree of social cohesion? Can't society function perfectly well as long as people are prepared to accept their differences and live amicably side by side in their different cultural communities with tolerance and respect? As long as people you know, respect um, other groups and other people within society, why do we need anything more than that? The reason why we need something more than that I think becomes apparent when you look at what happens when societies actually fall apart look at what happened happened in, in Northern Ireland for example look what happened in ex Yugoslavia <coughs> that's what <coughs> when, when a society consists essentially in disparate communities respect and tolerance are, are tend to be very fragile uh, and and if if all the, if, if If um, different communities have nothing substantial in common, then then, um, that that society as a whole is very fragile. So I think you do need something like social glue, so to speak. Uh, A stable society needs to be more than just what Rawls calls a a union of social unions. Um, What's more, I think it's better to look for social glue not to artificial contrivances such as flags and anthems and so on, but to the things that people are genuinely and naturally and spontaneously committed to. So those shared values which which people genuinely hold in common. should stress that that's not incompatible with a healthy diversity in society. I'm not looking for a a monolithic society. (coughs) It's perfectly compatible with the existence of different cultural traditions and practices which can be embedded in a society in which people still have core values in common. What are those What should those values be then? Well, as I've implied, and I agree here with something that Nazir Ali says in his article, they need to be then more than just the procedural values of tolerance and respect for diversity. You need more substantive values than that uh, at the heart of a society to hold it together and make it a unified society. But these more substantive values in our own society are not hard to find, I think. Values of, for example, caring and cooperation, values of respect for life, values of respect for individual autonomy, fairness and honesty. (coughs) These are uh, pretty well established shared values in our society Um, but they they need to be substantial enough for people to see themselves as working together and sharing a community, working together for a a common good. And that leads to a a further sense in which I think uh, that's important. Namely that, that sense of Being part of a shared community working for a common good is needed if people to accept policies, economic policies policies in particular, which are not in their immediate self-interest. For example, policies of economic redistribution, which are policies that inevitably you get in any modern society that has a system of taxation. (coughs) (coughs) If people don't feel part of a society with with, with other groups, then they're liable to say, well, why should I pay, pay taxes just so that that lot can benefit So you need some genuine sense of being part of a a society working together for a common good uh, in order for people to accept some degree of economic redistribution and therefore of social justice. So, that's my first claim then. I do agree with the claim that shared values are important. What about my second claim, which was the claim, sorry, the, the second claim that I'm considering, the claim that those shared values need to be rooted in a shared tradition. The ones I just mentioned, things like the values of caring and cooperation and fairness and honesty and so on, um, look at first glance as though they're not specific to any particular historical tradition or heritage. There's a good case for regarding them as universal human values, and indeed I think they are, and I think that's a merit of them, that they're capable not just of holding one particular society together, uh, but potentially extendable to larger communities and to a global community. So why do we need to talk about um, a specific social tradition or heritage. Well, I think we need to do so because um, um, although those values are plausibly universal, they have to be transmitted and therefore interpreted through specific cultural traditions and histories. One reason why that's so, I think, is what I want to refer to as um, the problem of incommensurability. I've I've been talking about shared values and saying what they are. I've given a list of different values. What happens when those different values conflict with one another? That's the problem of incommensurability. Uh, What happens when, for example, um, the value of respect for life comes into conflict with the value of respect for individual autonomy, as some people think that they do come into conflict in the debate about voluntary euthanasia and assisted dying. How do we weigh those competing values against one another? And the problem of incommensurability is the fact that there's no simple formula, no algorithm for, for deciding how to, how to weigh them against one another. So, so that's the problem of incommensurability, and that's why I think we need shared traditions Uh, through which to make sense of how these values are applied and what they mean in concrete situations. Take the example of the ongoing tradition of thinking about the morality of war. On the one hand, the recognition that war (coughs) is a great evil, but then the recognition perhaps also that maybe sometimes there are worse evils and that you have to fight in order to prevent those worse evils. (coughs) So how do we weigh um, the evil of war against what, what counts as a sufficiently greater evil to justify war? What we need there is... No, I mean, we can't decide those sorts of issues just in terms of some abstract formula. We need a shared history of precedence in order to make that sort of judgment. So, for example, within our own history, the First World War, I guess, now stands as an example of the horror and futility of war. But then also, I guess, the Second World War, for many people at any rate, stands as an example of a case where... Um, um, war was fought to overcome an even worse evil. Now, there doesn't necessarily have to be a consensus about either those cases or, 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 or any other cases. But um, the application of shared values requires a tradition of, um, of thinking about specific cases and applying those values to specific cases in order to make sense of them and in order to make sense of the questions of how much weight we should give to them. Now, I don't want to overstate the case for the importance of a moral tradition. Obviously, there are cases where um, you don't need those values to be interpreted in terms of a specific tradition to see their application. Take the example of um, the wrongness of slavery and the the debate about the wrongness of slavery 200 years ago. Well, of course, it was the the, wrong—the abolition of the slave trade 200 years ago. The debate about slavery went on longer. You don't need a particular social, historical, national tradition to see what's wrong with slavery. Um, You might say it's just an immediate recognition that this can't be right. It's just a response on the basis of basic human sympathy and sensitivity and you don't need to argue, well, it's contrary to the values of our own specific tradition. But then think about that example a little bit more. It's still the case I think that those basic human values needed to be located in, in that debate 200 years ago, needed to be located within a specific tradition in order to see how they applied and in order in particular to make the case for change against opponents who argued with a vested interest. Take the case in the debate in 1806 in Parliament. Take, take this example of what General Gascoigne, one of the MPs for, uh, for, for Liverpool, and so obviously someone with a vested interest in the slave trade. This is what he said at the, in the debate in Parliament in 1806. I shall quote divine authority to this house to show that the greatest, the wisest, and the happiest nation upon earth admitted slavery. And he then quoted um, chapter 25 of Leviticus. The slaves which you have, male and female, shall come from the nations round about you. From them you may buy slaves. These may become your property and you may leave them to your sons. After you, you may use them as slaves permanently. <coughs> so Gascoigne was appealing then to... Them to to, to scripture and to Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition to say slavery is okay, basically. Wilberforce spoke immediately after, after Gascoigne in the debate. This is what Wilberforce said. <coughs> it's impossible not to perceive in the very tone and manner of his allusion to the sacred writings that their authority has not been adduced by him for any purpose of grave and serious argument. It seems therefore unnecessary for me to disprove the allegation that scripture gives any countenance to the slave trade. Indeed, among the many various signal proofs of the purity and excellence of the religion we profess, it is not the least remarkable that not only is the practice of the slave trade forbidden and the principle on which it proceeds held out for our abhorrence, but it is specifically denounced as the worst of robbery, those concerned in it being branded as the stealers of men. Besides, the criminality of this practice is put on plain and universal principles, clear in their meaning and reasonable in their application. Principles which both pointedly interdict, is it, or interdict, I'm not sure. Dict. The indulgence of vicious and mercenary wishes and require us always to act on motives of love and kindness and goodwill to man. Now what's going on here, right? What's going on, I think, is that although you might say, well, you just need basic you know, the basic value of humanity in order to condemn the slave trade. When, when Gascoigne appeals to Scripture to defend it, <coughs> what Wilberforce is doing is is pointing out that that particular verse of Scripture that Gascoigne refers to is a relatively superficial feature of the, 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 the Christian tradition which they share. And Wilberforce is claiming that you know, the values of love and kindness and goodwill to man are much more fundamental to that tradition. And so... Um, so the, those are what make the case for abolition. So what's going on there then is that although in a sense the values that are at stake in the slavery debate <coughs> are, are of course not confined to that tradition, the tradition uh, and the different interpretations of it give the, the, the opponents in that debate uh, a position from which to argue for what those values mean in that particular historical situation. So I'm uh, arguing then I'm agreeing both with the claim about the importance of shared values and I'm agreeing with the claim about the importance of a shared continuing tradition in which those values are applied and interpreted. Now, that last example, the example of the slavery debate uh, and and, and Wilberforce and Gascoigne, brings me to claim three, I think, and I think this is the crucial one, really. Is the specific tradition in which the shared values of our own society are located the Judeo-Christian heritage. Well, I mean, that historical claim has an obvious element of truth. I mean, of course, historically, um, our values have emerged out of that history, which has been primarily a history dominated by that particular religious tradition. Now, you might say The values have outgrown that tradition and the fact that that's where they come from is irrelevant. You might say that's an example of the genetic fallacy. Where our values come from is a different question from what they mean and what their validity is now. That's a bit too quick, a bit too glib, I think, because if we're talking about the values that a society holds in common, I mean, part of, as I've been saying, part of what's important is that society's sense of a shared past in which those values have played their role and if the values are playing the, playing, playing the role of holding society together then an important part of their capacity to do so is their sense of their growing out of a shared past so you can't simply, accept, you can't simply neglect the importance of tradition and therefore you can't simply write off the fact that uh, a lot of our moral thinking emerges out of the Judeo-Christian tradition On the, at the same time I think to describe the tradition simply in those terms is too simple What is the distinctive contribution of Christianity to moral understanding? I guess it's the emphasis on the value of what you might call generalized benevolence, the value of loving one's neighbor, where the question, who is my neighbor, is answered, as in the Gospels, by the parallel of the Good Samaritan, i.e. your neighbor is whoever happens to need your help, whoever they may happen to be and whatever nationality or social group they come from. And there is a genuine distinctiveness, what well, to some extent a, gen, uh, a genuine distinctiveness about the sp- values specifically of the Christian tradition. If you contrast them, for example, with the cardinal virtues as they're um, articulated by Plato and Aristotle for whom altruistic values and virtues primarily have to do with one's obligations and relationships to one's own particular community. But on the other hand, it's important to recognize that that shift what I've called generalised benevolence, that shift to a kind of universalism which which sees as morally important, the standing of any human being, not just the members of your own community. That's not unique to Christianity. It's a development that's anticipated, for example, by ancient Stoicism in the Greek world and then the, the Roman world, Stoic ideas of world citizenship, and of human brotherhood. And it's no accident that both Christianity and Stoicism grow out of the particular historical and social culture, social, social culture that they do. It's the world of the demise of the small city-states, the world of the emergence of first the great Hellenistic empires and then the Roman Empire. In other words, it's a world like ours of globalization and multiculturalism and it's very much out of those that, that, you know, that historical circumstance that these values of generalised benevolence extending beyond one's own immediate community take root. What's more I think Christian values of love for one's neighbour and, uh, and so forth could only become the vehicle for concrete social and political ideas and institutions when they're allied to that, that classical heritage, the ideas inherited from Stoicism, the ideas inherited importantly from Cicero. Um, uh, uh, so, so Christian values once when they had to be applied to the life of a, of a particular political and social community, as they were by the, the church fathers. The church fathers drew on that classical tradition, just as, again, in the, in the Renaissance and post-Renaissance period, the application of those values in, in the modern world again drew on the revival of the, the classical heritage. So it would be more correct, I think, to describe that tradition <coughs> not as specifically the Judeo-Christian tradition, but a bit of a mouthful, the Greco-Romano Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, that's something I do want to emphasize strongly, the way in which different traditions interact uh, uh, and the Christian tradition draws on other traditions in that sort of way. And to develop that claim further, I want to look at another example, the example of uh, the development of liberal democratic values in this country, in the, in, the modern, in the modern world over the past four centuries or so, in the relationship of those liberal democratic values to the judeo Christian tradition. Should stress in what I'm going to go on to say that I'm not a historian of ideas, and I'm not going to be advancing any original historical claims. But what I want to do is to look at that bit of history in order to to, to, to see what that tells us about the nature of a moral tradition. Sorry, I should have, I should have. Um, that's what I've just been saying. Yeah. When I refer back to Bishop Nazir Ali, this is actually an interview that he gave him uh, a year and a half ago, which which was a sort of precursor of the the article that was published last week. Um, This is what, what he said. British society is based on a Christian vision and Christian values. Its institutions, its laws, its customs, all these arise out of a Christian vision. For instance, this is the key bit, The dignity of all human beings is clearly drawn from the biblical idea that human beings are made in God's image. So that's the value of human dignity then. It's drawn from the Christian tradition. Or it might be the question of equality. Or it might be liberty, freedom of expression. And he goes on, unless people know what the springs are that feed our values, the whole thing will dry up. So he's saying what those springs are that feed those liberal democratic values of human dignity and and equality and freedom of expression is the Christian tradition. Now that's a bit puzzling. I mean you don't find much about explicitly about any of those concepts I think in, in the New Testament. The idea of freedom of expression, the value of freedom of expression, the value of equality of opportunity or whatever, the value of human dignity. I don't think you find those concepts as such. Now, what you might say, though, is, well, this is where the idea of an ongoing and developing tradition becomes important. Of course, you don't find modern liberal democratic values in, in the Gospels, uh, but they do grow out of uh, the Judeo-Christian heritage as it evolves over time and as it's impli- applied in new circumstances. And in a sense, that's right. I do want to, I do want to agree with that, but I want, it's important to, 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 to look at what that tells us about the nature of a moral tradition. Let's focus in a bit more historically. A key period here is that of, the, uh, that of the 17th century in this country. That's when liberal democratic values, I think, begin to take shape in their recognizably modern form. One of the first systematic presentations of the case for democracy is the platform of the, the levellers in the civil war. Uh, and in particular, uh, a classic example... Is, is the Putney debates in 1647. This is what the historian Tristram Hunt says about the Putney debates. This was after, after the first stage of the Civil War, um, when, the King had been, when Charles had been defeated um, and when the, the parliamentarians, and in particular the army, and the levellers in the army, were debating, in effect, what to do next. Tristram Hunt says the levelers were not simply secular democrats in prototype. The Putney debates were more a mass prayer meeting than a constitutional symposium. Every day the soldiers sought God's guidance in their search for a political solution to the civil war and a post-monarchical settlement. While the likes of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins might find it uncomfortable, the story of British democracy is intimately bound up with the theology of Protestant Christianity. Now, that's the crucial claim, then, the claim for uh, the link between the emergence of those liberal democratic values and the Christian tradition. Now, again, up to a point, that's obviously true. Of course, (coughs) the Patney debates and the constitution debates of the the mid-17th century took place within a Christian framework, but of course, all moral argument took place within a Christian framework at that time and the Putney debates were no exception. But I think it's instructive to look at just what role exactly those Christian beliefs and values played in in the Putney debates. I want to look at the example of the Putney debates just a little bit more. Precisely because those that tradition uh, and that the inherited values of that Christian tradition were all-encompassing, they're to be found on all sides of the 17th century political debate. So, for example, those same values are invoked in defense of the divine right of kings by the, by the Stuart monarchs. This is what James I, how James I interpreted the Christian tradition. The state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon earth. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself they are called gods. In the scriptures, kings are called gods and so their power, after a certain relation, compared to the divine power. I conclude, then, this point, touching the power of kings with this axiom of divinity, that as to dispute what God may do is blasphemy, so it is sedition in subjects to dispute what a king may do in the height of his power. That's that's James in 16.10. So the point there, then, is that (coughs) Christian values can be and were invoked in defense of the monarchy and the divine right of kings. So the first point there then is that values within a shared tradition are not unequivocal. They can be invoked by both sides in what may be very deep conflicts. Second point I want to make is that um, the tradition develops in new directions because it encounters new events and new situations. As I've said, the Putney debates in 1647 took place at a time when the first phase of the Civil War was over. Basically, the parliamentarians... We're faced with the question: Well, what do we do now? And the inherited tr- Christian tradition and tradition of Christian tradition of values doesn't automatically generate an answer to that question. New thinking is required as to what those values mean in this new situation. The values aren't just there, waiting, ready, and waiting to be applied. Uh, and again, when when those values are applied to the new situation, again they generate conflicting interpretations so for example in the Putney debates we find the Christian framework of debate, debate being invoked by both sides not now in defense of the divine right of kings but still both by the levelers who are arguing for in effect a, um, a form of parliamentary democracy and for um, the, the people who are arguing for um, a more restricted franchise um, His. A very, very famous passage from the Putney Debates by Thomas Rainsborough. I recognise the first bit of it, I think. Anyway, really I think that the poorest he that is in England has a life to live as the greatest he. And therefore, truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first by his own consent to put himself under that government. And I do think that the poorest man in England is not at all bound, in a strict sense, to that government that he has not had a voice to put himself under so what's going on there, clearly, then, is that the first clause there, I think one can fairly readily recognise as a sort of 17th century restatement of the, uh, you know, the Christian value of the, you know, the, the moral standing of all humanity and the, the concern for every other human being. But then from that, Rainsborough generates a defence of democracy via this idea of authority resting on consent. Now, where does that come from? Again, it doesn't. It, you can't just automatically read it off from Christian values and the Christian tradition, or let alone the, the New Testament. Where, how does it come about that Rainsborough identifies Christian values of universalism with a notion of uh, government resting on consent, and therefore with a case for democracy? Here's one possible source from Richard Hooker, writing 50 or so years earlier. This is the hooker whom <coughs> Locke famously refers to as the, um, the judicious hooker. Unfortunately, the, mod- the modern connotations of the word. There was, there was a school in Canterbury, used to be a school in Canterbury called the the, the, um, the Hooker School, and um, uh, they changed the name of the school because, you know, the, the talk about the hooker girls uh, <laughs> really was thought to be not quite the right tone. So, so, so yes, modern connotations which we you, you should ignore. But here's a possible source for the idea of um, authority resting on consent. Richard Hooker writing after the Reformation settlement um, and making the case for a justification to the authority of the monarch as both head of state and head of church and again in a new situation where uh, new thinking has to be done about the basis of uh, both a, a political and ecclesiastical authority. So <coughs> this is how Hooker then in 1594, articulates the idea of government by consent. To supply those defects and imperfections which are in us living single and solely by ourselves, we are naturally induced to seek communion and fellowship with others. This was the cause of men's uniting themselves at the first in politic societies, which societies could not be without government. Strifes and troubles would be endless, except they gave their common consent all to be ordered by some whom they should agree upon. Without which consent there were no reason that one man should take upon him to be lord or judge over another. Uh, so government can't be established without consent, he's saying. Now Hooker didn't intend any radical conclusions to be drawn from this, but clearly it's a doctrine which the levellers then subsequently drawn. Hooker, I think, thought that <coughs> although consent was necessary to establish society in the first place, uh, that consent didn't have to be renewed, so once society existed, everybody had, a, had an obligation of obedience. But what's, what's important there, then, is that Hooker, to make sense of that idea of consent, is drawing on a story about the origins of society, uh, how human beings came to form societies from a state of nature in the first place. And although he tries to, uh, in his laws of ecclesiastical polity, although he tries to bolster it with references to the book of Genesis, really it's very much Genesis read in the light of the social contract tradition and the social contract tradition which derives from from very much from classical sources, from, for example, the the 5th and 4th century BC Greek sophists, such as Protagoras, for example, as represented in Plato's dialogue, Protagoras. So it's, again, a case where the interaction between the Christian tradition and the classical tradition of ancient Greece and Rome uh, is crucially important. So that that conceptual framework which is essential to the 16th and then 17th century debates about authority and government and democracy is very much the tradition of of natural law and of natural rights deriving from a state of nature and underpinning a social contract. And it's crucially dependent, as I say, on the classical tradition as as something that then has to mingle with the Christian tradition in order for for the latter to be applicable. Now that same framework is then apparent very much in the Putney debates, to come back to the Putney debates. <coughs> this is this is um, what I, Henry Ireton, who was Cromwell's son-in-law, said in the debate. Cromwell's contribution to the Putney, Putney debates was very interesting, by the way. Cromwell suggested they set up a committee, which I think uh, um, just shows you, you know, how he got to where he eventually got to. <laughs> Ireton was a defender of, of uh, moderate parliamentarianism, a critic of of, of democratic ideas and Ayrton in response to people like Rainsborough said if you make this rule I think you must fly for refuge to an absolute natural right and you must deny all civil right so he's, you know, he's recognising then that the case for democracy that people like Rainsborough are making depends upon some notion of natural rights <coughs> and he goes on <coughs> Sorry, what he's referring to there, then, is he says, if you appeal to the idea of natural right, you must deny all civil rights, and the civil rights that he's thinking about there are particularly are property rights. And his worry is that if you appeal to the idea of natural rights to defend democracy, then that's going to undermine property rights and undermine property. So he goes on, now, I wish we may all consider of what right you will challenge that all the people should have right to elections. Is it by the right of nature? If you will hold forth that as your ground, then I think you must deny all property too. And this is my reasoning. For thus, by that same right of nature, whatever it be that you pretend, by which you can say that one man has an equal right with another, to the choosing of him that shall govern him, by that same right of nature, he has the same equal right in any goods, he sees, meat, drink, clothes, to take and use them for his sustenance. Uh, so this is a, uh, a natural right to share in government, then it's also a natural right to share in the goods of society. He has a freedom to the land, to take the ground, to exercise it, till it. He has the same freedom to anything that anyone does account to himself to have any propriety in. So Ayrton's worried that if you appeal to natural rights, then you undermine property rights. And Ayrton's own position was that the franchise should be limited to those who own freehold property or are freemen of corporations and Uh, in a phrase that that, that echoes over the next couple of centuries those who have a permanent fixed interest in the kingdom this is how um, sorry I just read that Um, so this is how Rainsborough then replies to Ayrton And so to say, because a man pleads that every man has a voice by right right of nature, that therefore it destroys, by the same argument, all property, this is to forget the law of God, that there's a property, the law of God says it, else why has God made that law, thou shalt not steal. So this is Rainsborough's rather ad hoc move to say, no, okay, property rights won't be undermined if we invoke the idea of natural right, because of course it says in the Bible, thou shalt not steal. Now, as I say, I think that's very much an ad hoc move, (coughs) ad hoc in the sense that, though the core argument is being conducted in terms of the concept of natural rights, Rainsborough doesn't know quite how to use the concept of natural rights to defend property rights. Now, that further move, of course, was famously made by Locke, um, (coughs) another 40 or so years later. Of course, it's... It's the dispute which Locke tries to resolve by saying that not only are there natural rights to life and liberty but also a natural right to property. So like the levellers, Locke uses the apparatus of natural law and natural rights to argue for government based on consent and the principle of majority rule but he also argues famously that there is also a natural right to property and therefore, as he says, the great and chief end of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property. So, you know, um, despite the case for democracy, property rights are are secure because he, he, he wants to argue they rest on the same natural rights. The supreme power, therefore, cannot take from any man any part of his property without his consent. So that's the next stage in this ongoing liberal democratic debate. Now, of course, again, Locke, Locke's understanding of notions of natural law and natural rights is very much located within a religious framework and indeed a Christian framework. Um, as he says in this passage, the, the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it which obliges everyone and the reason which is that law teaches all mankind to consult it that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty or possessions. Those are the natural rights. For men, this is then the religious context that Locke thinks makes sense of that, for men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, all the servants of one's sovereign master sent into the world by his order and about his business, they are his property whose workmanship they are made to last during his, not one another's, pleasure. And, of course, for Locke, you know, that um, um, infinitely wise maker is, is, is the Christian creator. So Locke certainly, again, locates the concepts of natural law and natural rights within an explicitly Christian tradition. But then notice what happens again a century later than that. When when the doctrine of natural rights comes to have its maximum impact, it's it's largely outgrown any specific Christian background, I think. The classic late 18th century formulation of the doctrine of natural rights is that of Thomas Paine in his book... um, 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 uh, the rights of man Uh, and Paine of course is famously a deist who is a a relentless critic of Christianity Um, uh, and although he's willing to invoke um, Christian Christian notions of Christian accounts of of the um, uh, of the creation and so on. He's also quite explicitly saying that, you know, um, that the doctrine of, of, of the rights of man doesn't depend on any particular religious tradition. It's one that can be backed up by any 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 religious tradition at all. <coughs> so so he talks about you know, um, the genealogy of Christ trace to Adam and, and um, since and you know Adam was not created by by God as bound to any any ruler, so so the rights of man go back to Adam, but then he's quite explicit pain is quite explicit It's to be observed that all the religions known in the world are founded so far as they relate to man on the unity of man as being all of one degree and as I say, pain as a deist is very anxious not you know, not to make the doctrine of natural rights depend specifically on on the Christian tradition and since then of course increasingly the concept of human rights as transmitted to the contemporary world, um, <coughs> increasingly comes to comes to break loose from its its Christian foundations and its Christian origins. So that uh, in modern statements such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it, it doesn't depend on any particular religious basis at all. Now, what's the point of the, that rather rather um, extended example? The relationship of the liberal de- liberal democratic values to um, the ongoing, uh, historically ongoing, Judeo-Christian tradition. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm doing there, is arguing for certain theses about the nature of any shared moral tradition. First of all, that any shared moral tradition of that kind is an evolving tradition. It's not just a set of timeless principles, uh, which which is fixed for all time. It takes on new shapes as it encounters new situations. So, as I argued the parliamentarians um, interpret traditional um, um, Christian values of the, the, the value and importance of every human being in a new way in the light of their new situation and the new political dilemmas that they're faced with. Secondly, traditions evolve in that way through their interaction with and by drawing on other traditions and I've been emphasizing that the Christian tradition couldn't have Um, Led to modern liberal democratic values without that crucial interaction with with the classical tradition of ancient Greece and Rome which uh, which is just as important as the Christian tradition itself. And then thirdly I've been trying to show that any shared tradition of that kind just because it is shared by a, a whole society necessarily incorporates within itself internal conflicts. When that tradition has to be reinterpreted in new situations, there are always going to be different views about how it should be reinterpreted in that new situation. Right? So as I, as, as I suggested, in the 17th century, the Christian tradition underpins both the doctrine of the divine right of kings and the position of the moderate parliamentarians <laughs> like Ayrton and the, 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 the levelers in their case for democracy. So again, the point is that though it's a shared tradition, it doesn't generate some kind of moral orthodoxy which can be just read off from it and, and applied uncontroversial. Crucial moral conflicts take place within the tradition. So, in the light of that, what are we to make of claim for? I've acknowledged the importance of shared values and I've agreed with the view that a society needs shared values to hold it together I've acknowledged the importance of moral traditions the idea that those values need to be located within a shared tradition which provides a context in which they can be interpreted and applied (coughs) in a sense of course it's true that in our own society that tradition is the Judeo-Christian tradition but I've also said it's much more complicated than that Uh, um, the shared moral tradition is not a history of consensus. It's uh, a tradition that's evolving, that interacts with other traditions, which is internally diverse, which incorporates conflict within it. Where does that leave us in relation to claim four, then? What that, what, what that shows, I think, what I've been saying in relation to claim three suggests to me that there's no case for isolating one particular strand of this Diverse and internally conflictual tradition and propping it up by giving it some artificial prominence or privileged position. You can't just artificially hive off a moral orthodoxy and preserve it in aspic. As we saw, Nazir Ali implies that if we don't give some special prominence to the Christian tradition, and in particular Christian tradition, I think as interpreted by his church, Then, he seems to imply our shared values will just be left in a vacuum, what he calls a moral and spiritual vacuum, and they'll just collapse. Now, I think that's nonsense. Values like human dignity and equality and freedom, the liberal democratic values that he talked about, they don't need to be artificially sustained by propping up a Christianity if that would otherwise decline. Such values may owe something important to in part that tradition and its interaction with other, uh, other traditions and, it, and it, 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 its historical evolution, but those values are built into in, in our own society, built into innumerable practices and institutions and structures, formal and informal, political and social. And shared ways of life are more resilient than particular doctrine or creeds. And that was what I was trying to show when I talked about the evolution of the doctrine of human rights and how it goes from the levelers to Locke to Paine as a deist and then to modern declarations of human rights. It's an ongoing development and you can't just, as it were, (coughs) um, freeze it at one particular stage in that historical process and say this is the bit that's got to be preserved at all costs. Now, as I said earlier, it's not clear to me what exactly it is that Nazir Ali wants to remind you, this is what he says, to argue for the continuing importance of Christian beliefs and values is not necessarily to argue for the privileging of any church. So he seems to be implying is not making the case for, for a, continuing, you know, a continuing established church. It is quite possible to imagine a situation where there is no established church, but where Christian discourse remains important for public life. For better or for worse, the United States is a good example of such a situation. Okay, so he's arguing then for a continuing role for Christian discourse in public life. Well, fair enough. I mean, nobody would want to, I think, nobody would want to prevent the Church of England and other Christian churches from contributing to public debates. And certainly the secularism, as I understand it, doesn't, wouldn't seek to ban uh, uh, intervention by religious organizations and churches in public debates. The question is, as Nazir Ali says, what kind of role? should it have and here I think his allusion to the case of the United States is a bit ominous <coughs> I don't think that the role of religious institutions should be one of exercising disproportionate clout in virtue of their organised ability to deliver votes and money in elections that may be a bit unfair to the United States but but it's, it's not a very promising model for the kind of role that um, um, religion can play in public life and I think... Uh, it's interesting that he says for better or worse the United States as an example so what kind of role could it be? of course as I said religious groups can and should contribute to public debate but what I want to emphasize is that it has to be genuine debate and I think we need to be clear about what that means it's important that genuine debate requires a shared language and shared values as as I've understood them and as I've Try to, to explicate that idea, can play that role of furnishing a shared language for moral debate while being open to conflicting interpretations and applications. Those shared values, like values of care and cooperation and the value of life and the value of autonomy, they're what the philosopher W.B. gallied 50 years ago, famously called essentially contested concepts. That's to say, concepts such that there's general agreement about their are instantiation in central cases, but there are deep and long-running disputes about their application to more contentious cases. Galli actually took examples like art, where you know, people can agree about what uncontroversial examples of art are, but whether, you know, whether Duchamp's urinal or Tracy Emin's bed are art is, is a matter for, for debate about how you extend that concept from the, from the central cases to the more marginal cases. So he also takes the example of democracy. And I think that that understanding of shared values as essentially contested concepts makes sense of the kind of role that they play in contemporary debates. Take the case of debates about embryo research, for example, or the legalisation of assisted dying, examples which Nazarian actually refers to. (coughs) Genuine debate is possible if there's a shared language. If people bring to that debate... Shared concepts such as the dignity of the human person or respect for human life. But, of course, it's in the nature of those debates that they will involve different interpretations of what those shared concepts mean in this particular case. Would voluntary use of nasia, for example, represent the application of or the violation of the value of respect for the dignity of the person? Would respect for human life favour or prohibit the use of embryo research to find treatments for life-threatening diseases. These are disagreements that run deep, but, they're possi- but, but, but there can nevertheless be genuine debate about them if there is a shared language, a shared language of moral values, even though the debate may largely be about you know, different interpretations, conflicting interpretations of those shared values. They are, as I said, essentially contested concepts, but they can make possible genuine public debate. On the other hand, what I want to say is that it's not genuine debate if, and in particular, the churches and religious groups are not contributing to genuine debate if their role is simply that of an appeal to authority. It's no contribution to the public debate simply to assert, well, we think that assisted dying or embryo research or abortion or whatever is incompatible with the authority of the Bible or Incompatible with some other sacred text or forbidden by our church and so we just can't accept it. That, that's not genuine public debate. Again, it's no contribution to public debate just to say this is contrary to our consciences and so you've got to respect our consciences. Likewise, it's, I'd say it's no contribution to public debate to present the case, uh, a particular moral case, in exclusively religious language. So if, for example... As they did in the debate about um, the assisted dying bill in the House of Lords if church leaders say well we think that life is a gift from God and so assisted dying is unacceptable that position I would say has to be translated into a shared language and shown to be a plausible application of a shared value of respect for life if there is to be genuine public debate so (coughs) this is my conclusion then I agree that Historically, Christianity has furnished uh, a major part of our moral tradition and values, but I think that that's no argument against secularism as I uh, as I defined it at the beginning of this talk. Christianity and Christians and churches are welcome to play a continuing part in a shared public life, but not, and they shouldn't expect, a privileged role or an exclusive or entrenched role. It's important, of course, to acknowledge... The facts that that, um, the Roman Catholic Cardinal and the Bishop of Rochester it's important to acknowledge the historical facts that they appeal to Uh, it's important that education the education system in this country should make people aware of uh, shared history and traditions but uh, an awareness of that shared history in all its complexity and diversity what I've tried to argue is that a shared moral tradition is a living thing which is continually developing through interplay with experience, through interaction with new situations, through interaction with other traditions. So, the lesson to be learned from the past is to continue and encourage that further development, not to try to preserve artificially one particular component of that tradition. Thank you very much.
0: We're going to have a a time for some questions now. Uh, If you don't mind I would uh, take advantage of my position to ask one first. Um, Richard you put a lot of emphasis particularly at the beginning on the importance of the embeddedness of values in a shared continuing tradition that you didn't want to see them as sort of just falling from the sky Mm -hmm. and their application in a certain way needed that continuing tradition to give them their content. Uh, Then uh, then you went into looking at what a shared tradition is and how we should look at it. And you said it was an evolving thing, an evolving tradition, that it evolved with other traditions, this intermingling character, and it evolves with internal conflicts inside it. Now, it seems to me that the obvious paradigm of that kind of uh, shared tradition is precisely the Greco-Romano-Judeo-Christian one yes. that you identified as something rather richer than simply the Judeo-Christian tradition mm-hmm. that people like Nazir <coughs> Ali refer to. Well, two, two observations. First of all, One might say that the paradigm that you use there uh, is one which should in a certain way be thought of as open-ended because uh, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily come to an end at the Christian part. Um, And and also the intermingling might include Judaism and Islam at the very least Mm -hmm. in its formation but one might wonder whether your paradigm how generalizable your paradigm is people anthropologists used to refer to a contrast between traditional cultures and non-traditional cultures and it was sometimes difficult to see if they had in view many if any non-traditional cultures other than european greco- romano-judeo-christian uh-huh, but, right. but as it were there's something rather dis- i mean It's not a fashionable view at all, and I find it very difficult to accept it myself, but the idea that there might be something historically distinctive about the Greco-Romano-Judeo-Christian culture as a historical formation is as precisely the one which has this capacity to break out beyond itself, whereas uh, what were defined as traditional cultures are ones which, as it were... uh, sustain themselves without much change over extremely long stretches of history so that might be the first uh, mm-hmm. question would be uh, if your paradigm is too singular and that, uh, that in that sense the, um, the importance of the Greco-Romano-Judeo-Christian mind gets centred in, in, a, in a new way in your, but without perhaps being noticed in your own discussion And the second question would be, if there is an importance of the embeddedness of values in a shared continuing tradition, and the tradition that you're focusing on is this Greco-Romano-Judeo-Christian one, is secularity embedded in that tradition too? So that, again, the very formation which you want to defend is in an important respect Inseparable. In, in, inseparable in perhaps the way you describe where right. things can break loose in a certain kind of way but you didn't want to say that it was all just genetic fallacy if you say it has roots in this mm-hmm. tradition you yeah. found that important yeah. so what if secularity has roots in that continuing tradition mm-hmm.
1: <coughs> that's, that's interesting, thank you I mean, to, answer, to respond to that properly, I'd, I'd need a lot more empirical knowledge than I have. Um, but um, to take your first point, I mean, almost by definition, traditional cultures, um, you know, if we mean by those, you know, ones that remain unchanged for, for centuries, uh, <coughs> large, yeah, presumably largely because, you know, they, they they don't have much contact with with other societies outside. Um, um, yeah, you know, of course, they're very different from what I've been saying about the evolving nature of a tradition. I don't, th- I don't think that makes, let's call it the Judeo-Christian tradition for short. Right? I don't think that makes it a special case. <coughs> I mean, I've talked about the ancient world, and I mean, if you look at the you know, the ancient world itself, um, <coughs> the great flowering of, of of Hellenic culture in the um, you know, sixth, fifth. Fifth centuries BC is very much tied up with the growth of trade, the discovery of, of new cultures, um, you know, the, the, the influence of ideas from the east, and so on. So that itself is, you know, an example of a of a culture that <coughs> develops uh, in new ways through interaction. You know, um, and, it 's a point often made, I think that um, I think Alistair McIntyre makes this point that you know, though you know, the Greeks of the classical period refer back to Homer, Homer belongs in a very different world, um, and so although of course you know, they rightly see a continuity between between their situation and that of Homer, Homer provides a model that, uh, for the good life that has to be very much updated in the context of the greek city state um, <coughs> likewise um, um, I mean, clear, you know, clearly, in the modern, I mean, in the modern world, there are obviously very few, if any, traditional cultures. Right? So the you know, the process of globalization and, and uh, 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 multiculturalism you know, is affecting not just our own tradition, but presumably you know, every every other culture on its own way. And again, I don't know enough about this, but you know, obviously, you know, cultures of you know, cultures of Africa and Asia. Um, are involved in that same process of development through interaction with Western culture and, um, you know, if you look at the cases of India and China and so on, there's very much the same, same sort of thing going on, I would imagine. Then, then your further point question is, well, now where does secularity uh, fit into that process? Surely secularity you know, has its he, uh, has it he, he, European secularity has its roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition well again yes yes certainly yeah. I mean that's a point that, uh, that Nazir Ali makes, makes, makes in his article but again it's important to draw the right conclusions from that uh, I mean he Nazir Ali talks a lot in his article about the enlightenment he says well the enlightenment was you know very much a product of 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 the Judeo-Christian tradition well in a sense yes but then look at the development of the Enlightenment itself. You know, um, uh, you know the period of philosophy from, from Descartes to Kant, let's say. I mean, Descartes is still very firmly embedded, I guess, in that, in that Christian tradition. By the time you get to deists like, um, like Voltaire, um, it's beginning to look importantly different. By the time you get to someone like Goldbach, who's very much developing that same tradition of of Enlightenment values and in drawing on people like Locke and so on. I mean, for, for, for Tolbach, that becomes the basis for a very explicit and virulent rejection of religion and, and of Christianity. So again, <coughs> it's true in a sense that secularity has its roots there, but nothing follows from that about how, therefore, you know, you've got, you know, um, therefore, secularity doesn't really count because it's Christianity really. I mean, I know that's a caricature, but, um, but it's another case of an evolving tradition that, you know,
2: I'm
3: a secularist and I'm an atheist I'm the facilitator of the London Atheist Meetup Group and I have a number of criticisms of your lecture Uh, I think a humanist uh, defense uh, gives cardinals and bishops a credibility that they don't deserve Nazi Ali claimed uh, earlier this week Um, that um, Christianity claims the values of autonomy, freedom, and equality. The Judeo-Christian tradition is based on the rights of man, the brotherhood of man, and God's chosen peoples. It's patriarchal, it's racist, it's sexist, and they are far from cohesive. They are punitive and aggressive and one of the greatest evils of our culture has been the exclusion of women from public space this entire lecture has not mentioned the position of women at all the um, discussion of slavery completely ignores the role of women free thinkers who recognised the um, the the shared roots of sexism and racism and the church. They are still being ignored. And the church, far from uh, helping um, society to develop into secularism, stops it at every chance. It stifles it at every possible opportunity. It's less than 100 years since women have had the vote in this country. And we're talking about 2,000 years of Christianity. And I think that if you you want to look at the current situation, you've got to look at the extent to which Christianity and the other religions still suppress, censor and exclude atheist and secularist uh, opinions and until somebody including the British Humanist Association have got the courage to make some of these criticisms instead of uh, going along with them and treating them with kid gloves then we will not progress and I think that the the BHA in particular is way behind the British public because I think they see a lot of the effects of uh, religion Um, they might they may only have a gut feeling a lot of them and it's up to the British secular humanist uh, movement, in my opinion, uh, to be giving the rationale for that and supporting that uh, and basing it in reality instead of this, this constant drip, drip of Christianity okay. in our
1: public life and the media. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> it seems to me, with respect, that you're making the same mistake as the cardinals and bishops. That's to say, you're treating... The Christian tradition and the churches are some kind of monolithic entity, you know, which is, you know, stuck for all time and unchanging. Whereas, as I was trying to stress, I mean, all you know, the important conflicts that <coughs> take place within our culture and within our tradition are also conflicts within that Christian tradition. So, for example, I mean, you took—I uh, meant to take your point. I didn't say anything about sexism and the position of women. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at somebody like Wollstonecraft um, she's certainly appealing to. Well, she came out of a, a Unitarian background, I think, didn't she? And she appeals to a sort of vague uh, um, sort of combination of Christianity and deism I think. I mean, that's, that's exactly my point. Exactly my point. So it's a, an internally conflictual tradition. Uh, which can be invoked on both sides of any, any moral debate, but it's important that it can be because it, it, it's precisely what makes debate possible. Likewise, I mean, you refer to what I said about the example of slavery. Well, of course, you know, that was a debate within the t- Christian tradition. Um, <coughs> so <coughs> it's not enough just to say, oh, Christianity is racist, so, so it's somehow fixed for all time. I mean, you talked about the, the, the attitude of um, the churches to... Um, uh, um, to, to, to sexism and the position. Democracy didn't come out of Christianity. It came out of rebellion. It came out of both? It came, it out, of both. came out of rebellion. Oh,
4: no. It had to be wrung out of Christianity.
1: So what would you say, what, how, what would your reading of that 17th century debate be then? Sorry? What would your reading of the 17th century debate that I talked about be? Well,
4: they were under. The
1: would, uh, could, uh, could, the speak, please, minute, could the ladies speak? Could the ladies speak? You'll you defer to him. No, you,
4: know,
5: right, you okay. haven't left as
6: much time, <laughs> have you? so we've got to get involved. Okay, okay, quick. It came quick. out of the fact that they were uh, uh, led by the known uh, by religion. They've been brought up in
4: that. You mentioned the Enlightenment. Yes. You mentioned Dolbach. Dolbach yeah. had to publish under a pseudonym. Of course he did, because yes. Because was terrified yeah. to do yeah. otherwise. Yes. And, and, and Voltaire and people
2: like that, even
4: Hugh, pretending, oh, I, I'm a deist, because that was the least they could get away with, yeah. you know, and because the church was repressive. Yes. You know, now your
0: uh-huh. general thesis. Well, he is distinguishing between the church as an ecclesiastical presence and a traditional. Yeah, well, tradition. that's,
4: an old, that's an old argument, isn't it? Well, oh, really well there are lots of people want, really want to get involved
0: in this old argument. Uh-huh. You know,
4: it's not really the religion, it's the church. Mm. Well, that's a cop-out, isn't it? Yeah, well, let, let I just repeat
1: my point that what we're talking about here is a diverse tradition that has conflict within it and that interacts with other traditions, and it's not simply something that's set for all time. That would be one. We'll, we'll, we'll to have it. to
0: we'll have to let other people but come. You, yeah, just let me get one
4: point. Okay. Values that you told, say are in this Christio, uh, Christ, uh, with, you know, Christian, christian belief are in fact social. They didn't arise from the churches. That's that's a completely false reading for churches, which the churches want you to believe. You know, you've got to you've got to oppose that. These are social necessities, and we do have to oppose religion. You'll never get secularism in this society until religion is undermined much further than it already has been, because MPs and media opinion seekers are still frightened to come out and oppose religion, even though many of them. I think I
0: agree agree with some of that. There's also a very good illustration, though, Richard, of your distinction between secularity as uh, a political preference um, and secularism as a kind of ideological project Mm -hmm. which would want to eliminate religion. So do that, well, it may, no, if, I would don't th- Yeah, I think somebody else is waiting. Uh, yeah, there are there are two, two, three now we've got. So uh, if we take the chap in the in the blue shirt first, yeah, you yes, you got it, you got it. Oh well, you <laughs> you also have a blue shirt. Blue shirt to blue. Shirt. Thank you.
7: Uh, I'll make one brief comment and then my, my main point. The brief comment is you, uh, early on you said that um, respect and toleration are not enough as shared values. Respect and toleration are not enough right, yes, yeah. as shared values. Yep. Obviously, you may be right, but the example that you gave, of former Yugoslavia, doesn't really hold because obviously respect and toleration were not shared values no, in our right, society. Fair enough. Um, my main point is, I, I would title it The Myth of Christian Values. And the point that I want to make is that we don't really, when we say Christian moral tradition, what we're really talking about is a tradition of justifying bespoke values using Christian language. And I think that the last point that you made was about having a common language. Yeah. It seems to me, based on my you know limited knowledge of history, that Christianity provided a common language for people to discuss values. It is not uh, a source of values in any substantive sense. There are no Christian values that are shared by most Christians throughout history, except for generic Uh, leap service that's paid for benevolence, but obviously the most Christian society in the world today, arguably, is the United States, and they don't show a lot of benevolence towards the world. Um, It it becomes even worse when you're saying Judeo-Christian, because Judaism doesn't have the concept of uh, generic benevolence. Benevolence tends to be restricted to the Jewish people, except by very modern thinkers. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So my question is, wouldn't it be uh, more appropriate to characterize the moral tradition of this country as in the past having relied on a Christian language um, and right now since the Christian language is no more shared, no longer shared, we have to make a transition to using uh, the, the kind of language that is shared by most members of society.
1: Yeah, I think I'd largely agree with that. And obviously it's linked up with the point about that this gentleman here was making. I mean, I agree, and perhaps I didn't make this clear enough. I don't think the shared values I was talking about you know, are you know, generated out of nowhere from the Christian tradition. Of course, they're generic values, and of course, ultimately, they're rooted in what it is to be human and what the nature of human social life is. What I was arguing for was the way in which those values are typically mediated through a specific tradition so I mean I think I'd go quite a long way with your way of putting it what you know that Christianity historically provided a language through which those values could be applied and interpreted and I agree with you and perhaps I should have emphasized that more strongly but I think I was saying at the end I think in the modern world and this is where it ties up with the empirical facts about the secularization thesis I think that in the modern world as I said um, uh, Christians and members of churches if they want to contribute to, to public debate, have to find a way of, of putting their position in a way that doesn't use exclusively religious language. This is the point that I made, so I think on that point I largely agree with you. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, now, now you've passed the mic on so generously before. Well,
1: thank you so much, very kind of
6: you. Uh, I'm in deep water, so uh, if I make a uh, far part, please forgive me. Um, I am, uh, my position, I mean, I support your position that uh, in, uh, uh, in a multicultural world uh, we have to be inclusive and that we cannot, what you call, uh, uh, no no one constituent can claim uh, the monopoly on the uh, foundations of models. Now how does one give uh, a philosophical foundation to your position? Now, in my naivety, um, But if you were to look at the purpose or utility of morals, of morality, then we can say, look here, we are living, coexistence is our problem. If morality serves a purpose, it does serve the purpose of coexistence, then we can say to the people like Nazir Ali, look here, we need to coexist. And for this coexistence to be possible, we have to share and share values. With other, uh, uh, other what you call uh, schools of thought, and and religions, so what do I say? I saying that yes, I'm asking you whether morality serves a purpose, and is the purpose, if coexistence could be a purpose of morality.
0: Okay, so it's a general question about the utility, uh, whether whether one would appeal for the foundations of a uh, an inclusive society. The um, values on the basis of their social
1: utility. Uh, it, are you sort of referring particularly to the sort of you know, utilitarian kind of understanding of social utility? I mean, the, you know, in a broad sense, yes. And again, it relates to the previous point, I think, doesn't it? That I mean, ultimately, you know, you know values don't, you know, aren't generated by specific traditions. Ultimately, values are. Moral values are rooted in what it is to be human and what makes for a rich and fulfilling human life. But that's, you know, I mean, you know, that of course, <coughs> you know, what counts as a rich and fulfilling human life is, you know, is not immediately obvious and is, you know, is up for discussion and up for grab. So yes, you know, um, I mean, in a sense, you know, values need to be linked to the notion of social utility, but not in some crude sense that makes them just instrumental. Mm. Okay, got uh,
0: well one here, then one there, then one there.
5: Um, Could I just make um, a short remark? Can you speak into the microphone, please? Hello, can you hear me? I can, anyway, yeah. Okay, Um, short remark, possibly a question. I'm a great believer in a notion of a moral community in which people can debate morality regardless of whether they're religious or not. Uh, What I think you've demonstrated eloquently in your talk, and this seems to me a problem uh, with um, Nazir Ali and Cormac O'Connor, is that religious people still and I think it's a dying trade are really very bad at morality partly because they appeal to authority mm-hmm. uh, um, but, but for all sorts of personality reasons these are yeah. perhaps rather elderly people and that may be the, the basic problem um, so um, I mean and, and perhaps I don't want to get specific, say but I'd like to hear someone say something about abortion. I don't think there's anything right. religious about abortion or, or anti-abortion. No. Mm-hmm. Could you Could hold you know the microphone
0: up a little bit, please?
5: But what I really want, the question mm-hmm.
0: well, is... Well, just ignore me. Could you hold the microphone sorry, up a little bit? The, the,
5: the question is, um, what is the context in which uh, religious and non-religious people can seriously discuss moral issues? And then, of course, the moment the religious people introduce theological concepts... Uh, the debate comes to an end but is there a context either institutional or informal that you can point out where these things are actually being discussed or might be discussed thank
1: you all over the place I guess um, <clears throat> I mean I, I agree that one of the, you know, the problems about The the problems with um, participating in debates from a religious perspective is that there's this sort of great weight of authority hanging over people who argue from that kind of position. So it's much more, (coughs) I mean, (coughs) at at the risk of sort of presenting a caricature here, let's take the the position of the Catholic Church on contraception, right, (coughs) Which, which seems to me to be daft, right, um, I mean the problem is that it's very difficult for Catholics to sort of turn around and say oh sorry we've got it wrong for the past two centuries because they're, you know, they're, they're arguing, uh, participating in that debate from a, an institutional context in which there's that whole weight of authority which makes it very difficult uh, to change so as I said you know, the risk of, you know, of caricaturing the position of religious people I mean I think that is a, a characteristic problem that people have who are participating in moral debates from a from a, um, an institutionalized religious point of view. I mean, Catholicism is is you know, a particular case of that, and other, other Christian churches, it's less of a problem. But still, I was reading a, a, an interview that um, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave to a teenage magazine the other day, in which you... Um, um, I mean, a you know, highly intelligent guy, but, but perhaps because he was talking to a teenager magazine and had to sort of be you know, blunt and straightforward on the issue of gay sex, he said, well, of course, we can't go against what the Bible says. Um, <coughs> now, of course you can, as, you know, as we saw with the slavery debate and so on. You don't have to take a particular uh, um, uh, verse in Leviticus as the last word on homosexuality. But the, you know, the, the problem with the Church of England is it's lumbered with that past, it's lumbered with that weight of authority. I mean, this is where I, I you know, go along with agreeing with what you said. Um, <coughs> nevertheless, you know there are real moral debates going on, both within the churches and between people in the churches and otherwise. Um, I, I regularly give talks in schools. Um, <coughs> um, when six on conferences on, on, on abortion since you mentioned that example uh, and the textbook that this particular school uses says well the position of Catholics is that they're against all abortion the position of humanists is that they're, that they're they're pro-choice and the Protestants are somewhere in between so they line me up with a Catholic who's dead against abortion a Protestant who's dead against abortion and me I always get the sympathy vote because I'm one against two but I mean the, the serious point is actually we have a genuine debate Right? And they don't just say, "Oh, I'm a Catholic, so you know that's my position." You know, there's a genuine debate. There's a genuine debate to be had about the nature of human life, the you know, the you know, the process of, of development in the womb, and so on. So, you know, genuine debate is possible, even though perhaps religious institutional structures make it more difficult than than one would wish it to be. Thank you, Richard.
0: Um, we've got two more. Questions. I'm sorry, I took, my, took no, a long no, it's time right. on that. It's okay, uh, yeah, one here. you keep try and keep it brief okay. now, because. We're, Hang on. Well, we didn't have it tonight, but uh, if you... Yeah.
1: Some of us do. No. no. Please, please, let other people
0: come in now. Yeah.
2: Thanks for a really great (coughs) talk. Um,
8: I was considering your point about the need for a sense of commitment to a common good for people to accept policies not in their immediate self-interest. Yeah. And I agree that's a necessary condition for it but I'm yeah. wondering whether it's a sufficient condition for instance um, some people the people's attitude seems to be that um, when you have uh, people um, have immigrants mm. that uh, they're not uh, they're not happy about uh, about them being placed equally um, in uh, the Distribution of social goods. Yeah. yeah, and it may be that um,
4: what some people want is a far more uniform
0: society. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to keep it short. Thanks. Uh, uh, you... A quick response to that. I agree. Yes. I
1: mean, you know, the sense of a common good is a is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. And yeah. if we knew what all the other necessary conditions were, we we'd, we'd better be in a better state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, take the point. Yeah. Okay. Keep
8: bit quick if we can. Hi. Um, three, just three small concerns that came up. Um, probably the first that really your assumption that what um, constitutes debate is a shared mm-hmm. language. Um, obviously, for some people, the very fact that people are bringing different languages and, and different positions yeah. um, is, is actually what will will constitute the debate. Um, yes. And it, it would be slightly... I mean I noted with interest obviously you felt that perhaps religious groups shouldn't bring religious language to that so I guess that would be kind of awkward that therefore you know some people say well obviously non-religious organisations should not really be bringing non-religious language and that would be right. quite tricky yes. um, yeah. that was the first one the second is obviously some people would say that it, it's perhaps contrary to be able to have an evolving moral tradition that obviously once, once it has changed it, it for some people, particularly obviously, if it's bound up with belief or faith, mm. that tradition no longer stands. Mm-hmm. And then, one small thing um, that sounds quite trivial, but I thought it's actually quite important. I, I appreciate you said Greco, Roman, blah, blah. Greco, yes, but I, I think that what, what shaped a lot of um, language debate for Christianity was, was very specific uh, Greco heritage, really a very Platonic debate, Plotinus and Neoplatonism, rather than perhaps your giving the impression that it was very general um, Greek uh-huh. heritage that was taking me up. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Shaping things. Uh, okay. oh, interesting there yeah. are too many to yeah. take. Maybe take one of them.
1: Um, I'll take all three. Yes, yes, <laughs> and yes. Sorry. <laughs> very good. Yeah, yeah three, three very good points. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, last
0: question. I'm afraid we'll have to uh, stop after this one. Yeah. Thank you. Um,
2: Can I say I was a Catholic and I, for many years, have been an atheist. And, um, a couple of points quickly. And um, in regard to evolving, churches evolving in response—evolving, um, sorry—in response to dilemmas and so on, I think it's more a response to their fear of loss of power. Uh-huh. And today, it's loss of support. Right. Um, there's lots to say about that. And um, right. you mentioned something about shared language. And when you—if we you have a shared language—you can see another person's point of view as reasonable. I think. Yes. I—I I think it's highly complex because an ordinary word we we interpret in our own minds and and I'd give an example of Cherie Blair who in an interview on Woman's Hour I think was talking about well she's published the the fact that her child Leo was born because she didn't take her contraceptives to Yeah. which having made such a song and dance about the privacy of her children I feel is an appalling thing to do that child is going to read this you know etc Um, But she kept saying she was a good Catholic girl. And she said that... And then she was challenged by Jenny Murray about about birth control. And she said, well, you know, come on. People just have to look at Catholics and see the size of their families. Now, it is a mortal sin to use birth control in the Catholic Church. And mortal sin is absolute. There's no ifs or buts. And that's the Pope's position. She was boasting about having met two Popes. So (laughs) I think... I mean, I I haven't heard a lot of backlash against her, but that was particularly the reason why I left the church. I had three children under three, very bad pregnancy, etc. And I knew I had to bring these children up. So it's not a trivial matter, it's a huge matter. And my anger now against religions, particularly Catholicism, is seeing the poverty and destitution of people, unlike Shuri Blair, who has made her choice, Carries on supporting a church which oppresses other people who are too poor mm-hmm. to do anything different. And okay, I'm we'll to, 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 you to
0: interrupt you at that point. Richard, short, short response.
1: <coughs> I guess just to pick up that in the very first point with the, which, you, which you introduced it. Yeah, I mean a part of. I mean, I guess the Catholic Church changes slower than most. Uh, insofar as it changes, what? Sorry. Carry on. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, well, I mean, I, you know, just picking up your first point and agreeing with it, that you know, one of the reasons why any tradition changes is its fear of losing support and finding itself out on a limb. And I guess that's an important factor, which I didn't stress. Which, but you're right, that's another aspect of the picture. You're right.
0: Okay, yeah. well, thanks. We have overstayed our welcome here. I'm sorry <coughs> to push you through the 8 o'clock barrier. Let's just leave it with uh, thanking Richard Norman for a very interesting talk. Thanks, Richard. <laughs>